And before I begin today, I want to say something. I have, I've so appreciated the conversations both here at St. George's and uh, in the community, and I'm sure all over, about just how um, meaningful the funeral service was for former President uh, Bush this past week at the National Cathedral. Yesterday morning, I went to Starbucks, and I, was, I had my collar on. I walked in, and a person sitting by themselves at a table said something to me, and I didn't understand what they said. I didn't never seen this person. I walked over, pardon me, and said, thank you, Episcopal Church. Again, almost everywhere that I've been since Wednesday, uh, there have been comments about how impressed we all were with the, the dignity and the beauty of that liturgy. Um, and despite the sadness of the occasion in the, in the passing of former President Bush, uh, it was a good day for our nation. We've needed one of those. It was a very good day for the Episcopal Church, and it made me proud. And um, at the risk of embarrassing him, I want to thank our very own John Meacham for your just perfectly lovely eulogy that you offered as well. On a lighter note, and perhaps in an abrupt transition, something that was lost last week in the news coverage about the former president's death and state funeral was this article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, What's the Trouble with Canned Tuna Fish? That's right. And there is trouble indeed. The article was about the slumping market demand for canned tuna sold by traditional companies like Starkist, Bumblebee, Chicken of the Sea. These iconic tuna sellers are facing a new unprecedented problem identified as the millennial generation. Young adults are not just all that into canned tuna fish. Why is that? One reason is they don't own can openers. They don't even know what a can opener is. But, but there is also this, the, the smell, the smell. Fishy does not equate to fresh in the minds of many of today's young adults, and fresh is a high priority. So is it possible to reintroduce canned tuna to a new generation? That is the burning question. So today, second Sunday of Advent, we are reintroduced to the figure of John the Baptist. Every time I preach about John the Baptist this time of year, it's kind of like, to me, opening up a can of tuna fish in church. I don't think his brand of preaching is to our taste. John the Baptist is not exactly a highly marketable figure. He's not a winsome person. In fact, John the Baptist seems to us to come out of way back in the dusty pages of the Old Testament, making us wonder what he's doing in the New. Each of the four Gospels launches us into the narrative of Jesus' ministry through this unusual figure of John the Baptist. And we should recall that John the Baptist is a bridge figure, preaching the imminent fulfillment of the Old Testament promise in what is to be a new day, the coming of God's salvation. So John heralds the beginning of the New Testament, and that is why he was placed there. So get ready. 
Yes, weirdly eccentric, anti-establishment, boldly confrontational. And his message is essentially this. The way you live in the world, the way you have patterned your life, the way you see and experience things now is passing away. It's not the way it's meant to be. God is coming. So wait and watch and pay attention and turn to that reality. It's called repentance. And the call to repentance never feels very Christmassy. We are in Luke's gospel now. And even more than the other three evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke is very keen to situate the life of Jesus in its specific historical context. Think about what I just said in connection to one of the most familiar lines in all of literature. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be taxed. That is Luke dating for us when Jesus was born. Today's gospel lesson opens when Jesus, as well as John the Baptist, are already adults. But here's how it begins. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius. Well, thank you, Luke. That is very helpful historical information because we know when this is. This is 29 A.D. In all, there are seven, seven specific historical figures mentioned in today's gospel reading as the background for the ministry of John the Baptist and the launching of the adult ministry of Jesus. And here's what you need to know about that. At the time Jesus came into the world, when he was born, the Romans essentially allowed the Jews to govern themselves, more or less. Uh, the Jews had their own king, King Herod the Great, and as long as he, as long as they behaved behaved like a vassal state, paid their taxes, didn't disrupt the order of things, kept their religion largely to themselves, that would be okay. But don't mess with the peace. The Romans know how to stamp empire on other peoples, however, and that is to divide conquered nations as a means of controlling them. So when King Herod the Great died... And he had three surviving sons kind of jockeying for position. The Jewish lands were subdivided by the Romans into different sections. And those sons were not good people, really. There was lots of administrative ineptitude and corruption that followed, and it frustrated the Romans so much that while Jesus was a teenager, they eventually appointed a Roman official a Gentile, to oversee one of those divided parts. You could say the most important divided part, Judea. And then when Jesus had grown up to become an adult, that one is Pontius Pilate. This is all right there in the first verse that we heard today. This is what is really critical to understand. The mention of these historical names as the backdrop to John the Baptist, as the setting of the scene for Jesus, is not simply that we would know the dates, mark it correctly on the timeline. 
it is to understand actually what is going on with the Jewish people at this time. They are a divided people. Their identity as a nation under God has been broken up, fragmented. And we're meant to recall in that that the biblical sense of judgment, the Hebrew word for judgment, stems from an image of division and dispersal, of sifting and scattering. The literal meaning of the word diabolical has to do with dividing, division. It would be very easy for me now to sort of make a transition, as I have many times in recent years, to our own country. Divided, fragmented, scattered, atomized even. We are rightly worried. We wonder, are we a nation under judgment? What would John the Baptist preach to our country today? But actually what I want to do is to pivot in a different direction and to connect the context of today's gospel reading to our personal lives, to yours and to mine, divided, fragmented, too often scattered. The various cares and occupations of our lives are are not united, whole. They do not cohere around the only source of wholeness and peace and salvation that we proclaim, Jesus of Nazareth. You remember that St. Paul in his letter to the Colossians is very clear that in Christ, all things hold together. In him, all things cohere. And therefore, without him, nothing really coheres. And I wonder if this is so with me. I look at our lives all the time. I think about it a lot here. And sometimes what I think I'm actually seeing is analogous to a pie chart more than a coherent witness to Christ. Again, at least for me, it's a very large slice of the pie devoted to work. It's a big slice devoted to family and friends. Another slice devoted to social and civic commitments. Yet another slice to other kinds of extracurricular stuff, especially if we have kids. Another slice just for my personal wants and enjoyment. Another slice that's kind of unbudgeted space for things that we don't anticipate, like sicknesses, losing a job, troubles, issues with kids or family members. And then there's a slice for religion, right? What is the tithe? 10%? I heard an interview uh, on a podcast the other day with a guy named John Zaratsky, who's co-authored a recent book called Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. The title itself suggests, you know, one of thousands of books on that kind of topic that you can get. But I really enjoyed listening to him talk about what him led him, led him to write this book Um, As a young adult, he graduated from college, and he went to work for a a tech startup company in Chicago called FeedBurner. It was filled with a lot of people just like he was, smart people, hardworking, hard-charging, ambitious, productive people who were driven to succeed. It was a great job, a great life, living in Chicago, working for this ambitious, exciting company. And then one day he realized, as he thought about his life, perhaps for the first time in a while, that about three months had gone by and he couldn't really remember anything meaningful that had happened to him other than just the rat race. 
his company was purchased by Google. And then he decided to start studying the science, studying the data around people's experience of time and meaning, thinking about his own life, too. And what he came up with from the science, sort of a secular view of our social and personal situation, is that the thing that we should do is to set aside at least one time every day for meaning and reflection, what he calls a daily highlight, to have a highlight to your day, not a goal for your day, something to achieve, but some point in your day where you would pause, engage something that would force you to reflect on your life. And as I said, I enjoyed listening to him, but I thought, wow, I've listened up to this point for that. This is something we've known from the get-go. We, we would actually call the highlight something like prayer, uh, Bible reading, spiritual reading, worship. There's nothing new under the sun. In the midst of divided lives, look, pay attention. This is the refrain woven throughout the Bible and throughout our Christian tradition. We know this. This is where we have to return. Just like divided Israel at the time of John the Baptist, we long for a unified, a whole life. We know we're supposed to have the whole pie under the sovereignty of Christ. So we all wonder if we're offering our whole lives in that direction. Are we looking? Are we paying attention? Are we watching and waiting? And this is the question that the eccentric John the Baptist reintroduces into the church this time of year, every year. The call to repentance is an uncomfortable one. It's uncomfortable for me as I examine once again the messy bag of my divided selves, as I nose again under the lid of my inner life that actually has a kind of tuna smell. Our lives are an unpredictable landscape of peaks and valleys and unexpected turns and some dead ends. And into a world just like that, John the Baptist reappears in church for us this time of year, offering a fresh vision of a very old vision. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is an old, this is an ancient image of a royal dignitary, of a king approaching one of his subject cities, the host city, the, the leader of the city, the mayor of the city, would make sure that the people of the city had prepared a way for this visiting royal dignitary that was a straight way, that it would be a, a nice, clean road into the city, free of obstacles, level, red carpet treatment, visible on the horizon, coming toward us. 
That's what that image is from Isaiah. So we might think back again to last Wednesday, that gorgeous national cathedral filled with people. And then at last, the Bush family processing in down that straight level center aisle, other dignitaries, church leaders, the casket. We might think also of what we do here Sunday to Sunday, processing in as those who belong to that king, Jesus, processing in here where his mission is fulfilled at the cross, where we participate in it at the altar. So hear me clearly. By and large, the lives that I look at here are good. They are good. Thanks be to God. They're full of life and love and energy, and yet we are fragmented as well, divided, only seeing in part. And our lives are often attempts to to piece all that together, all these colliding commitments into one coherent whole. That's what we want. And so we arrive here again today, in this time of year, daring to hope that those fragments of our lives can be put together differently than they are. And we hear the voice of John the Baptist, who would want us to know that our hope is well-founded.